0: Last week we looked at principles of giving from 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, and uh, based on Paul's teaching to the Corinthians about their special offering for the poor in Jerusalem, we saw that we should give because God gave Jesus as a sign of God's grace working in us, motivated by love and characterized by generosity. We also saw that giving was for the purpose of meeting needs, as God blesses, characterized by wisdom and with preparation. And finally, we saw that God expects certain things of us in the New Testament, supporting church ministry, keeping promises that we've made to support various aspects of ministry, pastors, missionaries, and other workers for that support. But it's possible that last week's message may have left you with uh, one significant question, and this is probably the, the big question that comes up with regards to giving. Is there a command in the New Testament for believers to give a certain amount. How much should I give? Uh, most of us probably find it more comfortable if we have some sort of number to think about, and a number that we've often heard probably is 10%, or sometimes we've set, heard people say a ballpark, you know, once, you're, once your needs are met, then give of the, uh, the excess that's left over, if there is excess that's left over, uh, depending on your background. We want to please God. But in a lot of these sorts of things, sometimes we also want someone to come along and say, here's exactly what you should do. And part of the challenge of that is, if we don't have a specific guideline, then it is, we're sometimes hesitant because we're uh, fearful that we might not be doing what God wants, or we're not sure how we should get at a, a proper, uh, something that would be pleasing to God along these lines. So I want to, what I want us to do tonight is just to do a quick survey because I've heard a lot of things about giving growing up. A lot of different messages preached on this subject. And I think it's helpful for us to sort of step back and survey some of the biblical instances and just see what they say and approach it from that perspective. And just to put this in context, the point that we're driving at is how should we approach our giving in light of our support for missions? And that's what we hope to discuss in more detail next Sunday night. So let's start with Abraham in Genesis chapter 14. And uh, we just read through these verses. But I think that we can see from these verses that Abraham gave a tenth to Melchizedek. Uh, What was the tenth out of? What was the tenth out of? The tenth was out of the spoils of war. It says, Then after his return from the defeat of Lamor and the kings who were with him. The king of Sodom went out to meet at the valley of Sheba, that is, the king's valley. So, back to Abraham and away from from technology. Essentially, there were four kings that fought against five kings. And uh, the ones that lost out, Sodom was among the kings that lost out. Sodom was where Abraham's uh, nephew Lot was living. And so, if you look back to verses 11 and 12, these kings took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food supply and departed. They also took Lot, Abram's nephew, and his possessions, and departed, for he was living in Sodom. So, there was a dispute between these kings, and then the kings go to war. Lot is sort of caught in the middle of this, and so Abraham uh, goes to rescue Lot. We see this in verse 14. When Abraham heard that his relative had been taken captive, he let out his trained men, born in his house 318, and went into pursuit as far as Dan. And then God gives Abram victory. He divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus. He brought back all the goods and also brought back his relative Lot with his possessions and also the women and the people. And so then, uh, Abraham gives a tenth of what he brings back to Melchizedek. We see this at the end of verse 20. He gave him a tenth of all. Now, the Hebrew is somewhat ambiguous. So it could either be Melchizedek gave it to Abraham or Abraham gave it to Melchizedek. I think it's probably better to understand it, that Abraham gave it to Melchizedek and the reason for his giving was a voluntary gift as a sign of thankfulness to God. Now we notice that Abram returns the majority of everything else to the king of Sodom. Look at verse 22. Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have sworn to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, I will not take a thread or a sandal thong or anything that is yours for fear you would say I have made Abram rich. So the king of Sodom is so apparently grateful for Abram delivering the people and all of these things uh, from these other kings that he says, you can take all the spoils of war just giving back the people. But Abram says, I'm not going to do that because if I did that, then you could say, I made Abraham rich. And Abram wanted his riches to be seen that they were God's blessing on him. And so it seems like here's the whole amount. Abram gives a tenth to Melchizedek. Abram returns the other nine-tenths to the king of Sodom with the exception of, as it says in verse 24, what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me, let them take their share. And so Abram... um, is not. Uh, furthermore, this appears to have been a one-time event. At least to the extent that we don't have any other examples of this recorded in the life of Abraham. Uh, there's a couple of possibilities for this. It's possible that he did this regularly, and the other ones weren't written down. It's possible that this was such a standard practice that the the author writing the Book of Genesis felt that it wasn't necessary to write it down. I think that the reason that this specific account is recorded is to support what the author of Hebrews is going to say in Hebrews chapter 7. You don't have to turn there, but I'll just summarize it for you briefly. Essentially, in Hebrews 7, the author of Hebrews is saying, Jesus is greater as a priest than any of the Levite priests. And part of his argument is, Jesus is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And being a priest after the order of Melchizedek, he talks about Jesus existing forever. Jesus never needing a replacement, these sorts of things. And to support that point, he looks back to this text and he says that the greater uh, or the lesser pays ties to the greater, and he says that in this case, Levi, who was not yet born in Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek. And so the one who receives tithes is greater than the one who gives tithes, and even the one who received tithes in Israel's day um, paid tithes, so to speak, through Abraham as his direct ancestor. So, we see that Abram gives a tenth. Did anyone else do the same thing before the uh, law of Moses was instituted? I think we see this in Genesis chapter 28. So turn over there if you would, Genesis chapter 28. You know the story of Jacob, tricked his brother, his brother wants to kill him, he flees. And so uh, as he is traveling away to meet the family of his mother, he goes and he says in verse uh, 18, Jacob rose early in the morning and took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up as a pillar and poured oil on its top. This is after his his dream, the account of Jacob's ladder, some call it. He called the name of that place, verse 19, Bethel. However, previously the name of the city had been Luz. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and will keep me on this journey that I take and will give me food to eat and garments to wear and I return to my father's house in safety, then the Lord will be my God. This stone, which I have set up as a pillar, will be God's house, and of all that you give me, I will surely give a tenth to you. So again, we have an example of someone promising God to give a tenth. Now, Jacob's promise differs from Abraham in that it was a vow. Think back to what Abram said. Abraham said, I vow not to take anything from the king of Sodom. The vow was not about what he would give to God, it was about what he would not take from the king of Sodom. Here, uh, Jacob is vowing that if God blesses him, he will give a tenth to God of what he has blessed him with. And some people argue that this is an ongoing sort of commitment, but I really think that this was a one-time thing. If God brought him back to that spot, I think he was committing that he was going to give a tenth to God on his return. A vow in the Old Testament was, generally speaking, voluntary. Probably the only exception to that would be the Nazarite vow that God undertook for Samson before Samson was even born. That's probably the only exception that I can think of. Uh, But generally speaking, someone would make a vow. They say, God, I will give you whatever it is. And a vow had to be kept once it was made. Uh, Deuteronomy 23, 23 emphasizes this. Ecclesiastes 5 emphasizes this. If I say I'm going to do whatever it is and give it to God, don't go back on your word. That's the argument of Ecclesiastes 5 and also Deuteronomy 23 because God will take it seriously. So Jacob's promise is a vow. Scripture doesn't record for us when and how Jacob fulfilled that vow or for that matter if he fulfilled that vow. He does offer a drink offering when he returns to Bethel. We see this in Genesis 35. In verse 14, Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a a pillar of stone, and he poured out a drink offering on it. He also poured oil on it. So clearly he is doing an offering to God, but we don't have the full specifics of, of the details of does he fulfill this vow of the tenth to God. Now, assuming that he did, and I think it's reasonable to assume that he did, what would that have looked like? We see something like this and we think money, because that's the basis of our society today. It's it's a cash-based economy for the most part. In their day, their wealth would have been measured in flocks and herds and things like that. So it would have probably taken the form of a sacrifice to God of his flocks, his herds, the things that God had provided for him. Should we follow Jacob's example? Jacob's example in vowing that he would give a tenth to God. I think it's certainly difficult to see everything that Jacob does as a positive example. He certainly starts out his life being a trickster, being deceitful, being selfish, going his own way, and God has to transform him over the course of his life as the chapters of Genesis unfold into someone who is, for the most part, genuinely following God. So we have to ask ourselves, was he following God when he makes this vow, or was he not? There's two possibilities, I think, mainly. One is that he was trusting God, and the if was, if you do this, expecting that he would, uh, then he would fulfill his promise. The other is, the if is, I don't necessarily believe that you'll do this, God, but if you do, then I I will keep my word. Against this point, I think it's important to remember that Jacob was the father of the Israelite tribes and chosen by God. God was at work in him. And so even though we don't have a great amount of detail on this point in the text, I think we do have to recognize God's work in Jacob. I think we also have to recognize that God does not condemn Jacob in any way for this vow. So what, do we, what have we seen from these two passages? Abraham gives a tenth out of the spoils of war, an unexpected income, if you will. Also, apparently, as a one-time circumstance. Jacob promises to God a portion, a tenth, of future blessing if God fulfills the covenant promises that God had made to his forefathers. If he continues those to Jacob, Jacob says, I will then uh, show obedience, worship, follow you by giving you a tenth. Unlike these voluntary tenths, the Israelites were required to give at least a tenth and potentially more. What was the first tenth? Turn over to Leviticus chapter 27. Leviticus chapter 27, and we'll start in verse 30. It says, Thus, all the tithe of the land, of the seed of the land, or of the fruit of the tree is the Lord's. It is holy to the Lord." If therefore a man wishes to redeem part of his tithe, he shall add to it one-fifth of it. For every tenth part of herd or flock, whatever passes under the rod, the tenth one shall be holy to the Lord. He is not to be concerned whether it is good or bad, or nor shall he exchange it. Or if he does exchange it, then both it and its substitute shall become holy. It shall not be redeemed. These are the commandments which the Lord commanded Moses for the sons of Israel at Mount Sinai. And so... The first tenth uh, went to the Levites. Leviticus here says it was taken of, of grain, of cattle, of fruit, of those sorts of things. Why do I say that it was uh, for the Levites? Because Paul makes this argument in 1 Corinthians 9, that the Levites were supported by the things that were brought into the temple of the tithe, and in Numbers chapter uh 18 if you turn over a few pages there numbers 18 starting in verse uh, 20 the lord said to aaron you shall have no inheritance in their land nor own any portion among them i am your portion and your inheritance among the sons of israel to the sons of levi behold i have given all the tithe in israel for an inheritance in return for their service which they perform, the service of the tent of meeting. The sons of Israel shall not come near the tent of meeting again, or they will bear sin and die. Only the Levites shall perform the service of the tent of meeting, and they shall bear their iniquity. It shall be a perpetual statute throughout your generations, and among the sons of Israel they shall have no inheritance. For the tithe of the sons of Israel which they offer as an offering to the Lord I have given to the Levites for an inheritance. Therefore I have said concerning them, they shall have no inheritance among the sons of Israel. So what was the function of the tithe? It was to support the tribe of Levi who had not allotted land in Israel on which to grow crops and all these other sorts of things. God was going to provide for them from what the other tribes brought in worship to God. Furthermore, the Levites would give a tenth of what they received to the high priest. We see this in verse 26. Moreover, you shall speak to the Levites and say to them, When you take from the sons of Israel the tithe which I have given you from them for your inheritance, then you shall present an offering from it to the Lord, a tithe of the tithe. Your offering shall be reckoned to you as the grain from the threshing floor or the full produce from the wine vat. So you shall also present an offering to the Lord from your tithes, which you receive from the sons of Israel, and from it you shall give the Lord's offering to Aaron the priest. Out of all your gifts you shall present every offering due to the Lord from all the best of them, the sacred part from them. You shall say to them, When you have offered from the best of it, the rest shall be reckoned to the Levites as the product of the threshing floor and as the product of the wine vat. You may eat it anywhere you and your households, for it is your compensation in return for your service in the tent of meeting. You will bear no sin by reason of it when you have offered the best of it, but you shall not profane the sacred gifts of the sons of Israel, or you will die. So, what did this look like? It looked like when they brought these offerings, they were supposed to take the best part of the offerings and offer them to God. An example of when this did not happen was Eli's sons. Remember why God condemned them? They would come, people brought the offerings, and they said, You know what? I want the prime rib, I want the best of the grain, whatever it is, I'm going to take the best of the best for myself. In addition to that, they were living immoral lives, and God basically said that they were going to die in battle because of the way that they had behaved. But coming back to the point here, why did God institute the tithe in Israel? It was for the support of the tribe of Levi. Now we see in Deuteronomy 14, a potentially second tenth Deuteronomy chapter 14 we see this starting in verse 22 it says you shall surely tithe all the produce from what you sow which comes out of the field every year you shall eat in the presence of the Lord your God at the place where he chooses to establish his name the tithe of your grain, your new wine, your oil, and the firstborn of your herd and your flock, so that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. If the distance is so great for you that you are not able to bring the tithe, since the place where the Lord your God chooses to set his name is too far away from you when the Lord your God blesses you, then you shall exchange it for money, and bind the money in your hand, and go to the place which the Lord your God chooses. You may spend the money for whatever your heart desires, for oxen, or sheep, or wine, for strong drink or whatever your heart desires and there you shall eat in the presence of the Lord your God and rejoice you and your household also you shall not neglect the levite who is in your town for he has no portion or inheritance among you so the giver according to verse 23 would uh eat of this tithe if he lived a long way from jerusalem he could convert it to money for transporting it to jerusalem as the people would gather there And this meal, according to verse 27, was not just for the giver, but also would have been shared with the Levite. A potentially third tenth was given every three years. Look at verse 28. At the end of every third year, you shall bring out all the tithe of your produce in that year and shall deposit it in your town. The Levite, because he has no portion or inheritance among you, And the alien, the orphan, and the widow who are in your town shall come and eat and be satisfied in order order that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hand which you do. So when we look at the people of Israel, we tend to think they gave 10% of everything that they had in terms of uh, new uh, sheep, new crops, all of those sorts of things. But if we look at these other passages... 10% would have been the minimum, and it could could have been as much as above 20% that they were giving to God. What was the nature of the tithe? The nature of the tithe differed from the tenth given by Abraham and the tenth given by Jacob in that those were amounts that they voluntarily took upon themselves to give to God, but God required these amounts of the Israelites It supported those without an inheritance, the Levites. It was owed instead of voluntary, and which is why in Malachi 3, 8, 9, it says to withhold it was to steal from God instead of giving what was owed. Think about what Jesus said in Matthew 22. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Render to God the things that are God's. If Caesar required a tax, they had to pay it. I don't want to say the tithe was simply a tax, but there are parallels between... The taxes that supported Caesar and the tithe that supported the uh, societal structure that God had instituted among the Israelites. And yet at the same time, the tithe was an act of worship. It wasn't disconnected from the Israelites worshiping God. We don't really think of giving money to the IRS as any sort of an act of worship. I mean, that's probably one of the furthest things from our minds when we're filling out our tax forms every year. And yet, for the Israelites, giving this amount that was required for the support of a societal structure, that of the Levites, was an act of worship to God. Because God condemns them for failing to do it in Malachi and in other places. What about offerings? Is tithes the same as offerings? How do our tithes and offerings related? One offering was related to the tithe, and others were additional. Numbers 18, 24 to 29, talks about a heave offering, and this just had to do with the way that it was lifted up and presented to God over the, over the altar, and that was given out of the tithe, according to Numbers 18. I'll read that for you here briefly. It says, present an offering to the Lord from your tithes, out of all your gifts you shall present every offering due to the Lord from the best of them, the sacred part from them. Furthermore, there were votive offerings or offerings connected with vows. This would have been similar to what Jacob did, right? Because Jacob made a vow, God, if you bless me, I will give this to you. And uh, Deuteronomy chapter 12 and verse 6 speaks of this. It says, to the place that God establishes, there you shall bring your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, the contribution of your hand, your votive offerings, your freewill offerings, and the firstborn of your herd and of your flock. The freewill offerings that are mentioned in that verse as well were also voluntary, but were not connected with a vow, and the requirements for them uh, were different than the vow. If it was a vow, the animal had to be a healthy animal. It couldn't be something wrong with it. If it was a free will offering, Leviticus twenty-two twenty-three 23 says that there was some leeway in whether it could be defective in some way. It was a free will offering to God. It wasn't in fulfillment of a vow. So we look at all of these things, and we look at them and we say, this all seems tedious, and what's the point, and, and why are we going through all of these passages in detail? Here's the point that I'm trying to make. What Abraham did, what Jacob did, what the people of Israel are required to do, there are similarities and differences from those things and how we should understand giving in general. So the fourth point I want to make is that the church is not required by the New Testament to give a tenth. The examples of Abraham and Jacob are a model, but not a command. Romans 15.4 says that the things that are written in Scripture were written so that through Uh, comfort of the scripture, we might have hope. Negatively, 1 Corinthians 10 says, there are bad examples given in the Bible for us not to follow so that we don't fall in the path of sin. The Old Testament has value. We should learn from it. We should understand it. We should learn about God. We should learn about how we as human beings act and God's responses to those things. But we also have to be careful because... It is easy sometimes to take a one-time event from someone's life and say, we should do this. For example, the, the emphasis, it's been a while ago, but what would Jesus do? Sometimes people say, what would Jesus do? The sentiment is not bad, but there's a lot of things that Jesus would or could do that you and I can't or shouldn't do because his life was unique in what he was doing. And yet at the same time, there are things that Jesus provides a model for us as well. In the same way, I think uh, the examples of Abraham and Jacob fall into that category. We cannot replicate every detail of their lives, but we should look at their lives and say, what does God want us to learn from them? Secondly, Jesus makes comments on the tithe in the New Testament. Do those pertain to us? They are directed toward the Pharisees, uh, and they were a condemnation of the Pharisees for their stingy attitude. What did Jesus say? You tithe mint and dill and cumin and all these spices. You're willing to get a little scale and measure out the spices that you have, that you have received in some way while you let widows starve while you use the word of God for your own benefit. So Jesus' point is not, you should tithe. Jesus' point was, you shouldn't look at everything in life and say, what is the 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 least that I can do and meet the, the letter of the law, and God will be happy with me because I've sort of checked off the box. Furthermore, what about the requirements of the Old Testament law? The requirements of the Old Testament law, some people have said there was the civil law, the sacrificial law, and the ceremonial law. Here's the challenge with that perspective on the law in the Old Testament. They're all interconnected. And so, if we say, well, the civil law doesn't apply to us because we don't live in a theocracy and God is not our king in the United States the way that he was in Israel, so we'll ignore that part. What about these passages that we just looked at? I don't think that we would necessarily view them, most people wouldn't necessarily view them as part of the civil law, and yet they very clearly applied to a specific circumstance that was true in Israel it's not true for us today. We have no Levites. I'm sure there's people that probably draw a parallel between those who serve the church and the Levites, but I don't think that that's a valid parallel. Fourth, the Gentiles were not commanded anything about the tithe in the instructions laid out in Acts 15. In Acts 15, the question was, what do the Gentiles need to do in terms of the requirements of the law? not even in terms of the requirements of the law, but if Jesus has fulfilled the law, what is it that we expect the Gentiles to do? Do they have to um, follow all the rites and rituals of Moses to be accepted as full followers of Christ? And what was the response of the apostles? The response of the apostles was no. And of the things that they listed, none of them was the tithe. There's a lot of things that also that they didn't list, but you would think that if that was a central and a significant focus, that it would have potentially come up in that discussion. So if I say there's no command in the New Testament to give a tenth, what's our question? Do I have to give anything? I think that the Bible would teach us that Christians should still give. While Abraham and Jacob are not a command, they are an example. I think that we can learn from their examples from this perspective. Abraham is held up as a prime example of faith in the Old Testament. Clearly there's things that he did that we should not do because they're condemned or contradicted elsewhere in Scripture, polygamy being an example of that. I don't think anyone would argue, Abraham did that, so I should do that. That's not what I'm saying and yet the things in which Abraham exemplified faith and worship and trust in God, I think we should consider how can we follow Abraham's example. Jacob too, although he starts out badly as a rather wicked person, he, through his life, follows God, and I think we can learn from his example as well. What about Jesus' condemnation of the Pharisees? I think that the example of the Pharisees while not primarily about the tithe and not binding on us that we should tithe I think it teaches us a valuable lesson and I think that it's a corrective to the perspective that we often have do we view life as simply about material things or to ask it a different way do we give of everything not just money Think about Paul's example in 1 Thessalonians 2. He said, We were willing not only to share the gospel of God with you, but our own lives as well. So Paul viewed not just possessions, but all of life as something that God had a claim on, something that should be used in service of one another. Connected with this as well, do we give of our time, money, or skills as little as possible? Matthew 6, 21, Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So that doesn't mean take all of your money and put it over here, and it automatically means your heart is right. But I think sometimes we can look at the way that we use what God has given to us and examine what our priorities are. There's been times in my life when I've had to look back and say, I'm spending a lot of money on things that aren't important and are selfish, and I shouldn't be doing this. I think all of us, if we're honest, we have moments like that in our lives. We have to say, this is revealing something about my heart that needs God's help to correct. And even more more importantly than those two points, do we realize that everything we have belongs to God? Sometimes we look at this perspective, like the Pharisees looked at it, and they're like, God gets a tenth. That's what belongs to God. But, Genesis 1.1 1, 1 says God made everything. Psalm 24 says God owns everything. Ecclesiastes 5 and 1 Timothy 6 says we come into this world with nothing and we go out with nothing. It all stays behind. Joseph in Egypt, Genesis 50 and verse 20 says, Here's what you intended to happen, but God intended this for good, so that as a wise steward of the position that God put me in, people's lives would be saved. He saw that his life was for the purpose of accomplishing something for God. It was part of God's plan. And Paul, speaking primarily of his stewardship of the gospel, but with application of our stewardship of everything in life, what does God require of someone to whom he's entrusted something? Are you going to be faithful with it? The law of Moses is not binding on us, but we are still under the law of Christ. This is mentioned in 1 Corinthians 9 and Galatians 6. Love God above all, love your neighbor as yourself. Christ is our master, sin is not our master. Just because we're not under the law doesn't mean we do whatever we want. It means that we must follow and live for Christ. With regards to giving, as we saw last week, uh, those who preach the gospel should receive a living from the gospel pastors, missionaries, and so on, and clearly I think that people have a skewed and a false view of this. We see the example of preachers on TV and celebrities, and we say, that's not it. We also see the example of people who live in poverty. Uh, There's churches that I know of in, in Africa that are doing very little, if anything, to support Uh, Those who are ministering to them. And Paul said that that would be a right of those who minister. And so there is a, a, a measure of training and of growth that has to happen for that to take place. Also with regards to giving, those in need in the assembly should be able to count on Christian brothers and sisters for help. If we see those who have basic needs not being met, who are a part of our congregation, what does James say? You look at somebody and you say, I'll pray for you, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and you have the capability to help someone in that circumstance and you don't do it, James says you need to examine whether your faith is genuine or at least whether you're living it out the way that you ought to live it out. And then certainly there is an appropriate place, I believe, for special projects, as we saw from 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, Special projects connected with missions, special projects connected with particular needs. So what does this then mean for us? I think Abraham and Jacob willingly gave a tenth, potentially just once, at least that is recorded, The Israelites were required to give at least a tenth, possibly as much as 20-some percent, to support the Levites and those in need. The church is not required to give a tenth. but building on the examples of Abraham's faithfulness and the generous examples of the early church. Think about what the Gentiles did. They were not commanded to give a tithe, but what do we see? They followed the example of the Jews who gave sacrificially in Acts 2, 4, and 5, and in 2 Corinthians 8, 1 says that some of the Gentiles gave even out of extreme poverty. Sacrificially and generously. So to say all, put all these things together, our question when it comes to our giving should not be, have I moved a decimal place and met the requirement? Our question should be, am I recognizing that everything that I possess in life belongs to God? And am I willing to give of what I have to see God's work accomplished? So what does that look like for our church? I think it looks like ministry over structure. It's easy for churches to fall into a position of perpetuating programs or different things like that, because that's just what churches do in America. And I think we have to ask ourselves, does this accomplish gospel ministry, or is just something that we do? Connected with that, things like a building. I am in no way saying that we should sell our building or anything like that. But, we should see the building as a tool. The building should serve the purposes of the church. We should not serve the building. In other words, someone might have an idea that we needed to spend $50,000 on some sort of massive renovation, and my question would be, is that the most effective use of our money? Clearly, if something is going to fall apart, if it's gonna be unsafe, if it needs to be replaced because it's worn out, yes. But I don't think that we should pour extravagance into our building, particularly if we are neglecting spending money on things that are important for gospel ministry. Another example, we have to prioritize what is going to be most effective. What is almost always most effective in evangelism is you and I building relationships with people around us. To that end, I think we have to ask ourselves, are we going to spend $1,000 to send out postcards that may get thrown away? Or are we going to spend Potentially much less and say, let's buy Bibles, let's buy Bible study guides, let's distribute them, let's take them, let's use them for evangelism. It's not always an either or, but I do think we have to ask ourselves, how are we spending money wisely? I think that we have to prioritize in terms of ministering to our members before we minister to society at large. If you see your neighbor in need, help your neighbor. But in terms of the funds that we have for our church, I get tons of calls coming into the church. Can you help me with this? Can you help me with this? Can you help me with this? If somebody in the church needs help, we got to help them first. Not because we don't care about everybody else out there, but because we can't help everybody. And I think we have an obligation and a priority to help those in the assembly. And then I think uh, the final application would be that we have to meet commitments and then strive toward ideals. We have certain commitments whether it be a utility bill or what we pay the people that upkeep the grounds or what we do to support our missionaries. We have to do those meet those commitments and we can say we'd really like to do this and this and this and this and I'd say if we can great But let's start by meeting the commitments and obligations that we've made. And so the specific application that I want to make from this is with regards to our missionaries. Missions is a part of the whole work the church is doing. And I think, ideally, our budget should reflect that. I think that we should commit the church's money according to what we know of past giving toward missions, rather than projecting it on what we would like it to be potentially but that we don't know of yet. I think once we make that commitment, we should do our absolute best to meet that commitment. If we say that we're going to give a particular missionary $100 a month, then let's strive to meet that commitment. And this is important not only for the sake of our testimony to them, but also so that they're not put in a difficult spot, not able to do the work that God has put them there to do. I think as God blesses in various ways, and we potentially give extra beyond the committed amount as God blesses us individually, like we looked at from 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, then we can agree as a congregation to use that money for specific projects, whether that be a ministry trip, whether that be saying, this missionary, we just want to give them a a particular gift this year, something like that. Uh, Any number of, of options connected with these things. Next week, my goal is to tie all of these principles together and say, what does that look like? in terms of faith promise and our church and our giving specifically toward missions. But the larger thing that I want us to take away is this. Do I view my life as belonging to God and do I ask myself not what is the least that I can do for God? And I'm not talking about money that you put in an offering plate at this point. I'm talking about the entirety of our lives. Do I recognize that God has a claim on my life because he made me, because he saved me, because he's called me to serve him? Do I recognize that, and does that characterize the way that I live my life? That's something that I think far too often there's been points in my life when I've said, you know what? I've given my money to church, and it doesn't matter what I'm doing the rest of the week in terms of service to God because I've met this specific obligation that I felt that I had. I think that God corrects the perspective of those who misunderstood the law. The law said, you owe a tenth to God. The truth behind that is, God made everything. The Pharisee said, what's the least that I can do with my life and still meet the minimum requirement in God's sight, God doesn't own just 10% of my life. God owns all of who I am. Like that song that we sang just before the message. Nothing I should withhold. And again, I'm not saying put everything in the offering plate every week. What I am saying is recognize that your life belongs to God, that we have an obligation to use and be used up in his behalf because that's why he made us. That's why he called us. That is what will be a testimony and a call to the people around us who don't know God to follow him if they see that God is our focus, not all of the other things in life that are so easily our focus. And so next week I hope to Summarize some of these things more, but for now, let's close. Lord, we see examples in Scripture of those who gave of your blessing. Those who committed themselves to give in various ways. Lord, if nothing else, I pray that we would take away from the things that we looked at tonight the idea that we should not look at our lives as for us but for you we should not look at our possessions as for primarily or only our enjoyment although they are good blessings from you but as resources to be used in service of you. Lord help us to be specific to be intentional, to be wise about the way that we live our lives, the way that we are stewards of everything that we have and are. Lord, you have blessed us abundantly in this nation. You have blessed us individually in the relationships that we have in this church, in the hope that we have in the gospel, in so many different ways. Help us to be faithful to you and live for you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.